I'd like to encourage you to have your Bibles open in Isaiah chapter 53 and then also to Hebrews chapter 12, as we'll be talking about these uh, in the course of the message. And I'd like for you to be able to look at the words and see what they have to tell us about the servant of the Lord. We're glad that you're here with us today. We have a number of visitors, and we're thankful for you, your presence, and I hope that you're... Um, visit here with us today will be a blessing to you and that uh, you will be here again soon. The words humility and humiliation sound a lot alike, but there's a vast difference between them. Humility is a quality that we admire. Humility is when somebody voluntarily lowers himself or herself voluntarily uh, assumes a, a role that we might think is beneath them, but they don't. Humility is when uh, a person assumes a lower place than they deserve, or when they refuse to seek the limelight, or when they act in the best interest of others, even if it's at cost to themselves. That's humility. Humiliation is very, very different. Humiliation is to be made to feel worthless by somebody else. There's not anything voluntary about it. It's being treated in a painfully embarrassing way that causes others to look at you in scorn. Humiliation is something we all avoid, whereas humility is hopefully something we all try to develop. Humiliation is what Isaiah foretold would happen to the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. And it is that which was fulfilled when Jesus went to the cross for the sins of the world. Remember we said in the beginning of the study, there are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. There's one in chapter 42, one in chapter 49, one in chapter 50, and then the one that begins toward the end of chapter 52 and continues throughout chapter 53. And each one of those contributes something to the overall portrait of the servant of the Lord whose task it would be to lead Israel and indeed all humanity back to God. And so Isaiah 53 so vividly paints a portrait of the suffering of Jesus on the cross bearing the burden of the sins of the world. It's like a mirror image. When we read about what Jesus went through, it's like a mirror image of what we read in Isaiah chapter 53. It's not until Isaiah 53 and verse 8 that we're explicitly told that the servant will die. We know that the servant will suffer from the previous servant songs, but not until 53.8 are we told that he would die. It's implied that he will die in verse 5 when it says he was pierced and he was crushed. And in verse 7 when it speaks of a lamb led to the slaughter. And in verse 8, when it says that he was taken away by oppression. But it's not until the latter part of verse 8 that it says, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? And then verse 9 that says they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So the New Testament accounts of Jesus' trial and crucifixion mirror what Isaiah had said so long ago would happen when the servant of the Lord came. You know, when you and I think of the cross, I think we naturally just automatically think mostly 
about the pain. The pain of crucifixion. But what I want you to notice today is that Isaiah emphasizes more the shame of the cross. I think in Isaiah's mind it was the shame more than the pain. That was the greatest price that Jesus paid. And there's no doubt that being crucified was an excruciatingly painful experience. By the way, that word that we use to describe the ultimate of pain, excruciating, is from the Latin expression, excrucis, from the cross. When we want to describe pain that's, that's off the charts, pain that is indescribable, we think about the pain of the cross. We think about the pain of crucifixion. Remember, Jesus had already been scourged until he was near death before he was ever led to the cross. He'd been forced to carry the cross beam across his shoulders, which had already been beaten and were no doubt bloody. And he'd been forced to carry that until he fell under the weight of the cross. And then when they reached the place of execution, his wrists and his feet were fastened by what we call nails, but were actually spikes, probably six to seven inches long. Fastened to that cross, this feet being placed either one on top of the other and a spike driven through both, or with his heels turned side to side and a spike driven through both heels. It's hard to imagine the pain that would be involved in that. Crucifixion, you see, was not so much an execution as it was torture. That's exactly what the Romans intended. It was designed to prolong suffering as long as possible, and it usually lasted for multiple days. People didn't die from crucifixion itself. They died from the secondary causes. They died from an infection that might set into the wounds and eventually kill them. They might die from a cardiac arrest when their body just simply couldn't stand anymore. They might die from exhaustion when they simply no longer could breathe. And in the position in which they were crucified, they could no longer maneuver their bodies enough to draw breath. Crucifixion was indeed a very, very painful experience. It's hard to imagine a more painful way to die, and that's what the Romans wanted. They wanted to terrorize people into submission. Crucifixion was painful. But on top of that, crucifixion was shameful and humiliating. And that is the emphasis that we find in Isaiah 53. He talks about Jesus being oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep being sheared. He's treated like an animal, not like a human being. He was paraded before the Jewish Sanhedrin and falsely accused. Pilate couldn't find anything to charge him with, so he sent him to Herod. Herod had wanted to see him because he basically wanted to see him do some kind of trick. And when Jesus wouldn't perform, he sent him back to Pilate. And when Pilate still didn't know what to do for him or do with him, he tried to present him to the crowd and, and along with a criminal, a real criminal by the name of Barabbas. And he said, which one do you want me to release for you? Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd chose the criminal. They chose a man who was a murderer rather than to free the Son of God. He was mocked by the soldiers with the crown of thorns and the robe. 
and the humiliation and the hitting and the spitting and all that went with that. It's no wonder Isaiah chapter 15 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not, hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Crucifixion was reserved only for the lowest of criminals, and so Jesus was treated like one. He was stripped naked and held up to die in public for all to see and to mock him. And even after his death, his body suffered the disrespect of having a spear rammed into it just to make sure. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And only one secret disciple came forward and had courage enough to go to Pilate and ask for the body. And took him and buried him in his own new tomb. It was a borrowed tomb. There was no grave marker that said here lies Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing that gave the dates of his life. Nothing that indicated who it was who was laid in that grave. He died in utter humiliation and shame. When we think about that, I think we might ask, why? Why all the humiliation? Wasn't, wasn't it enough that he had to die for the sins of the world? Wasn't it enough that he went to the cross carrying that burden on his shoulders, that burden on his soul of all the wrongs ever done by all humanity? Why did it have to be a death of such humiliation? And the answer is because sin is humiliating. We don't always see that, but, but it's embarrassing how foolish and sinful we are. It's shameful how sinful we are. We don't always recognize it, but it is. One of the saddest aspects of our, our current moral and social climate in which we live is that people have lost the capacity for shame. They've lost the capacity to be embarrassed about their own behavior and will rather parade their, their misdeeds in front of everybody and everybody's supposed to say it's all right no matter what you're doing and no matter how sinful it is, no matter how shameful it is, no matter how destructive it is, everybody's supposed to say it's okay and if you don't say it's okay, then you are the one who is shamed because you won't go along with everybody else. Sin is embarrassing, and it's shameful. We just don't always recognize that. It goes back to God's holiness and our sinfulness. What Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He was shamed. He was embarrassed by his sin. And we should be shamed and embarrassed by ours, so the servant of God, the son of God, came and died to bear that shame for us so that we can stand before God washed clean in his son's blood. Washed clean in his blood rather than stained by our own sins. There is that beautiful verse in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. It says this, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Isn't that what you want to do? Jesus is coming. How do you want to meet him? Do you want to shrink from him in shame at his coming? Or do you want because of Christ to know that you don't have to shrink from him in shame at his coming? You can welcome his coming with confidence. 
because Jesus has washed you clean in his blood. John says, now little children, abide in him so that that can happen. If we don't abide in him, if you don't abide in him, then you will shrink from him in shame. You don't have to. But that's what will happen if you don't allow yourself to be washed in the blood of his son. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3 is a sort of commentary on Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 9. And I want to read again the first two verses of Hebrews 12. Listen carefully to this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's talking about all those faithful from the Old Testament that he described in Hebrews 11. We are surrounded. As we live our lives in Christ, there are onlookers. There are onlookers. That is that, there's that great cloud of witnesses described in Hebrews 11 that is watching us, cheering us on, if you will, as we run our race. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want you to notice verse 2. The writer says, we are looking to Jesus as we look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. Jesus knew how shameful and humiliating the cross was going to be for him. But he despised it. He counted it as nothing. He looked at it as something of no consequence. He despised not the pain, Hebrew says, but the pain. And counted it as nothing because he was looking past it. He was looking past it to the joy that was set before him. He was looking past it because he knew that after the cross was going to be the victory that we're going to talk about in two weeks. He knew that after the cross would be the joy of seeing people come to God because of what he had done. And as a result, he was able to endure both the pain and the shame because he just looked past them. He knew they were there, but he knew they were temporary. And he looked past them, and he went to the cross anyway. But you see, what these verses are really about, if you read them carefully, what they're really about is what you and I are supposed to do with that. What are we supposed to do with the fact that Jesus despised the shame for the joy set before him? Well, look at verse 1. Like those victorious, faithful saints in chapter 11, who did not receive what was promised, but were faithful to God, believing he would keep his promises, we are to first of all lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Like a runner getting ready to compete in the race of his life, because it is. Get rid of everything that hinders. And then he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Jesus endured the cross. Surely we can endure whatever life throws at us. If he could endure that, surely we can endure whatever it is we're going through. You know, there are times when we make a lot of excuses for not being faithful to Christ. There are times when we make a lot of excuses about our, our failure to live the lives that we ought to live day by day, our, our failure to, to serve him. And, and they, they don't hold much water when you put them up against the cross, do they? 
I've had people tell me, you know, well, I, I don't serve the Lord anymore because somebody hurt my feelings one time. I don't serve the Lord anymore because I saw somebody at church do something they shouldn't have done. I don't serve the Lord anymore because it just got too hard. We need to remember the cross. We need to be ashamed to make excuses like that. And here's the key, the writer says, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. As you're running, you're looking to Jesus. The word that he uses here in the original, by the way, doesn't mean to just look. It means to look away from other things to focus on one thing. It means we've decided we're not going to be distracted by life. We're going to focus on Jesus. It means that we are looking away from other things. We're looking away from ourselves. We're looking away from the, the glitz and the glitter of this world. And we are looking at Jesus and keeping our eyes fixed on him as we run. As we run that race, we know exactly where we're headed. We are headed toward him. So we're to look away from all else and keep our eyes on him and not be distracted by life. And when we do, we won't make excuses. We'll just be faithful. We'll be so focused on running our race. We'll just keep on running. We'll abide in him. And then when it's all over, we won't shrink from him in shame when he comes to receive us. So verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him so that you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. Think about what he went through, and it will give you courage to run your race. But there's even more. We're not just called on to look to Jesus. We are called on to share his humiliation with him. Go down to Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. And the writer says this, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's contrasting the tent, the tabernacle of the old covenant, with the altar that Jesus has prepared for us. That heavenly altar. And he says, they have no right to eat of it. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Notice what he says about Jesus. He suffered outside the camp. When the priest got through offering all those sacrificial animals, they took the head and the, and the skin and, and all the parts that were not suitable to offer for sacrifice, and they took them outside the camp and they burned them. They took them to what Leviticus 4 describes as the ash heap. They took him to the garbage dump. And the writer of Hebrews says that's where Jesus died. He died outside the camp. Scripture doesn't tell us that he was crucified at a garbage dump. The writer speaking metaphorically. What he's saying is that Jesus died outside 
the camp of, of religious respectability. He died outside the camp of acceptance by his contemporaries. He died outside the camp of comfort and convenience. He died outside the camp of not being humiliated. He died outside the camp. The same rejection and humiliation foretold by Isaiah so long before. And then verse 13 says, Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. God is calling us as followers of Jesus to go to him outside the camp, whatever that takes, whatever that means, whatever that requires, whatever the sacrifice. You go to him, you give up whatever it takes to give up, and you follow him and you share in the reproach that he endured. With his help, by his grace, and to his glory. Somebody might ask the question, why would we do that? Why would we do that? Verse 14 tells us, because here, this world, this life, we have no lasting city. But we're looking for a city that is to come. I don't know how good or how bad you have it in this life. I don't know how good or bad your life is right now, but let me tell you something. It's eventually going to be over. And you can't stop that. You can't change that. It's eventually going to end. You don't have a lasting city here. You need to be looking for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's what Jesus was doing. That's what Hebrews 13, 14 tells us to do. Seek that city that is to come. Can you do what Jesus did? Can you look beyond this life to the life to come? Can you look beyond whatever challenges, difficulties, hardships, pain, humiliation, or whatever that it will require of you to follow Jesus and run the race that God has set before you? The answer is yes, you can. But will you? Will you make that decision? Because it will mean laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely things that may be dear to you, and running with perseverance the race that is set before you, never stopping, never looking back, never regretting what you started to do, never giving up. Are you ready and are you willing to go to him outside the camp? Outside the camp of human approval. Are you ready for that? If you are, what you need to do is confess that you believe in him today as God's son and your savior and repent of your sins and be baptized into union with him in his death and his suffering, his shame and let him give you a new life and then look forward to that city that is to come. If you're ready to do that today, he's ready to receive you. You can come and tell us while we stand and sing. I will sing